Welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. This week, I am joined by the director of the IU McKinney Health and Human Rights Clinic, Mr. Fran Quigley. Fran is also the author of the book, How Human Rights Can Build Haiti. Now, if you're like me, you wonder, okay, IU's McKinney School of Law is in the middle of Indianapolis, Indiana, and Haiti is Haiti. It's very far away. So my first question was, what led you to be interested in Haiti? Yeah, um, well, Haiti is actually, I've known folks who've gone to Haiti really most of my adult life, and a lot of people do, um, because Haiti's really very geographically really close to us. Right. Um, whenever I went on the plane to, to visit Haiti to, to research this book or to do you know, uh, lawyer advocacy and that type of thing, um, I never got on that plane by myself. There were people from Indianapolis, the Indianapolis area who were going, oftentimes with a church group or a school group. They're going for medical missions or dental missions or to, or to dig a well or to build a school. And so there's a lot of kind of connection to Haiti. It's a, it's a 90 minute flight from Miami. It's really physically close to us. I think I've done the math in terms of just the, the, the Google mapping. It's closer to us than Las Vegas is, um, Port-au-Prince, although it's another right. world away in terms yeah. of how people live, but it's, so it's geographically close. And so as a result, I've known a lot of folks going there, and but it is a world away in terms of how people live. It's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. Um, you know, there's not enough food, there's not enough jobs, there's not enough healthcare, and, um, and what, what I found, though, in looking at it from a lawyer and a law professor perspective is that kind of the core of the problems is that Haiti doesn't have um, justice. Haiti doesn't have a rule of law or, or a transparent government that's accountable to the people. And uh, that's the kind of thing that the Haitian lawyers, the human rights lawyers that I got to know and their, and their U.S. counterparts have been working on, and hence the title of the book. The title of the book is How Human Rights Can Build Haiti. A lot of times we think in terms of a charitable model if we dig wells or build a hospital or something, um, that will save Haiti. And that's incredibly important work. But for Haiti to survive long term, it's going to have to have an accountable uh, government and enforceable rights. Yeah, and you'd mentioned that uh, whenever you got on a plane, you were the only one going to Haiti. I know when I was in high school, I had a number of friends that do mission trips and over there, and it never seemed quite as sketchy, I guess I'll say, as as it as it was. Uh, going through your book, you find out that uh, former presidents, uh, president for life, was Jean Claude. How do you say his last Duvalier, name? Duvalier. Yeah, Jean Claude Duvalier, the guy. He was a menace yeah. that he would have people killed for speaking out against him. And it sounds like all these years, I mean, maybe it was just me being young and not knowing, but it sounds like the place has not been the safest of places for a long time and that it's just kind of starting to try and turn the corner right. to where people actually matter. Right. I think that's a fair fair characterization. And, and the Jean-Claude Duvalier situation is actually really interesting because Jean-Claude Duvalier is really pretty much known around the globe as having stolen millions and millions of dollars from the Haitian treasury, imprisoned his opponents, had his opponents killed. And where he is now, he's in Port-au-Prince, a free man. Uh, Mario Joseph and others are, are trying to, are pushing the prosecution of him. And, and not because it's so important to put this particular guy in, in prison. He's older now and he's not too great a health, but it's about the, the message that sends is to the, to the current leadership of Haiti and future leadership of Haiti is, you know what, you can't get away with this anymore. Right. And if, if you're gonna try to steal from the treasury and be corrupt and try to you know, bully and even kill and imprison your opponents, you know, we're gonna 
track you down and we're going to prosecute you the way it would happen in the United States or Canada or Mexico or any place else. Um, Haiti is no longer a place of impunity. So that's a really important case that, that it, again, is written about in the book. And again, he is a human rights hero. Um, he's an amazing person. He himself grew up in, in real poverty in Haiti. And uh, a lot of folks who grow up in poverty and make good, be able to become a lawyer and, and to really struggle to get that, will then be kind of about themselves and about supporting just their family. And he right. is instead trying to turn his life back on trying to help the people that uh, that his family has been and his community had been um, and it's great risk to himself because you you advocate for human rights in Haiti you're you're arguing against the interests of some powerful people in a country that doesn't have a lot of of restrictions on how powerful people act right and so he's been a subject of of death threats and um, he's had friends get assassinated I mean his life is literally in danger every day he he does this uh, does this work for about the next minute or so you're going to notice a little bit of a difference in the audio quality that's because Fran was kind enough to allow us to drop a recorder into one of his lectures and pick up what goes on now these lectures tend to be audience participation heavy so we had to record the whole room as a result it might not seem as clear as the rest of the interview but we'll get back to the one-on-one portion in just a moment Haiti had the devastating earthquake that you've all heard about in Port-au-Prince in January of 2010. So Haiti has had more than a share of bad fortune and bad situations. But Haiti had never had cholera. The total amount of 8,600 people died in this cholera outbreak, and over half a million people sick, 600 to 700,000 people sick. And now the cholera, which hadn't been in Haiti for 100 years, is in the waterways. Is considered to be endemic in the country and it continues to the claim that it is. Now, it didn't take long before folks were able to figure out what happened. What happened on that night? What happened to cause this amazing explosion, this horrible explosion of disease? And what happened was the United Nations placed, United Nations places troops in Haiti from MINUSTA, the peacekeeping force. And in October 2010, a few, not few days before this outbreak, some troops were sent over from Nepal, and they were sent over from a region that had just had a cholera outbreak. <coughs> they were sent over from the region that just had a cholera outbreak, but the United Nations did not test them for screening. Then the United Nations sent them to a rural base in rural Haiti next to a, a, a little river, maybe the May River, which flowed into Haiti's main tributary. And what happened at that base was the United Nations took the untreated human waste from these folks and just dumped it in water and the infection spread from there. As the scientists later told the New York Times, it was like taking a lighted match and throwing it into a gasoline filter. The explosion happened. As a human rights lawyer and human rights you know, professor, um, I hate that the fact that the United Nations is the bad guy, because the United Nations right. does a lot of great work around the world. But in this case, it's the United Nations that dumped untreated, infected human sewage into the Haitian waterways and killed 8,600 people and sickened more than a half million of them. And the UN needs to make it right. And uh, what hopefully will happen is the UN is going to make it right by creating the water treatment system that Haiti so desperately needs and by by giving an example of saying, okay, this is what the rule of law looks like. I messed up. I, the, or the organization messed up, and I'm going to make it right. And um, that's hopefully what the outcome is going to be. And it's also, be again, a great example for Haiti to show that the people of Haiti matter, the people of Haiti have rights, and we're going to enforce those rights. Are there any updates or anything to the book that you'd like to throw on here? 
Um, yeah, I think kind of a, a kind of an action update is, as you mentioned that you've known people again, I don't know too many people, especially in, in our neck of the woods who don't know somebody who's gone to Haiti on a mission trip. I think that presents a terrific opportunity for Haiti. One, it's amazing what they do now. I mean, it's people are taking their vacation time, they're spending their own money, they're donating their time, they're donating goods and, and medicine and things. So, I mean, that in itself is just wonderful. But what I think it provides is even a greater opportunity is if those folks start um, embracing the idea of being advocates for Haiti as well as being service uh, providers to Haiti, then they can push the United States to do the right thing by Haiti, the United Nations to do the right thing by Haiti. They can push um, Haiti to prosecute people who have been involved in corruption and for uh, the rule of law to prevail in Haiti. So we've actually started something in conjunction with the book coming out that's called uh, Speak Out for Haiti. So it's speakoutforhaiti.org. And it's specifically designed for all those folks. And then there's thousands and thousands of them who go down to Haiti for charitable service purposes to say, hey, let's also recognize we're citizens of the most powerful country in the world. We're definitely citizens of the country that has the most say in what happens in Haiti because of the funding and, and all the other um, trade and, and military connections. Um, let's use our voices to help Haiti as well. Let's tell our member of Congress, hey, vote for this particular piece of legislation because it's going to make the aid more effective and better. Hey, let's tell the United Nations that you caused this cholera outbreak that's killed 8,600 people. You need to make it right. And frankly, if enough of us do that, those things will happen. Uh, then Jean-Claude Duvalier will be prosecuted. The cholera outbreak will be um, addressed. There'll be better housing, et cetera, et cetera, if enough people in the U.S. tell our lawmakers um, and in the international community as well that uh, you know we care about Haiti. In the time since this interview was conducted, Jean-Claude Duvalier passed away. The people of Haiti never got to see him prosecuted for the crimes he committed against them. Now, if you want to keep up with the happenings in Haiti, or if you maybe want to participate in a charity for Haiti, visit Fran's website at speakoutforhaiti.org. But for now, we need to bring you a message from our sponsors. If you're interested in human rights, you'll want to join us at IU McKinney School of Law for two upcoming programs. On January 20th, we are hosting a discussion on living wages as a human right. And on January 22nd, we'll turn our attention to examining the recent CIA report on torture in a program entitled The Torture Report, Domestic and International Law Implications. Get all the details at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. At this point, I'd like to turn my attention to Fran and why he became interested in law in the first place and why he tends to gravitate towards human rights. I actually was the, uh, well, I am the eighth of nine kids, and uh, my dad was a car salesman, my mom was a physical therapist, so we didn't have lawyers in the family before our generation, but my oldest brother is a lawyer, and my oldest brother actually is a poverty law clinical teacher in uh, New Orleans at Loyola University in New Orleans. So very similar work to what I do. And he's 13 years older than me. So he was kind of a, a bit of a role model going through. And so I wanted to do public interest law all the way through. Okay. So it's always been a public interest. You didn't start somewhere else and like kind yeah. of moved along. It, it, I moved a little within it, uh, within the field, but I actually, I really wanted to be a public defender. I wanted to do death penalty defense work. I'd wanted that since I was a teenager. And then fortunately, while I was a student at this school, I'm an alum of this school, I got a chance to, to have a clerkship at the state public defender's office and work on those cases. And they're amazing cases and amazing people working on the cases. But it showed me I didn't want to do it. Oh. And it was a little too intense, and it was uh, I, I didn't see the uh, some of the 
community society solving possibilities there that, that I'd hoped would be there. And so I think that's actually a really good advantage that all of our students have. You get a chance to do a job on a part-time basis or a clerk basis, and then you realize, hey, this is great stuff, but I don't want to do it. Yeah, kind of dip your toes in the water yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and you can learn. You know, I think that's a valuable lesson. Learn what you don't want to do too. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, so it was just too intense, and then you took it. You decided to step back, try something else. Is yeah, that, yeah. Uh, so you were a professor while you were doing those? No, I was actually okay. in school. You I were was, in I was, school. Yeah, while I, doing I graduated. Okay. I, I grew up here in Indianapolis, and I went to this law school. I went to actually Bloomington for my first year, and then transferred up to go to the, to take this job at the State Public Defender's Office. So. I'm a relatively rare faculty member that's actually an alum of the school as well and uh, grew up here in Indianapolis. All right, cool. You're a professor in the Health and Human Rights Clinic. What goes on? I, I work here too. I don't know what goes on down there. What do you guys do? <laughs> Go ahead and just lay the whole thing out for well, me. Well, there's, there's a lot of different clinics that we have, and they all do really cool stuff. There's a common denominator in that uh, they, I'm the only clinic that has the title health, human rights in it. But um, every one of our clinics is really a human rights clinic. We have a wrongful conviction clinic representing poor folks who have been convicted, who are imprisoned, and may have been imprisoned wrongly, and try to go back and recreate the past and figure out whether they got, they uh, were wronged when they were convicted. Uh, we've got a civil practice clinic, does a lot of domestic violence work. Professor Hagen does that. We've got an immigration clinic. Professor Kelly leads that. We're getting low-income folks who come from other countries, usually seeking asylum because they've been uh, uh, they fled a really violent situation, a dangerous situation in their home country to come to the U.S. Uh, we've got a criminal defense clinic. We've got uh, an appellate clinic. We've got a disability clinic. Um, we've got, we have now have a conservation law clinic. So um, a lot of different varieties. Our particular clinic is actually focused these days um, mostly on domestic local folks who have employment issues. Um, they're low-wage workers, people who have uh, usually lost their jobs and they're applying for unemployment benefits and having trouble getting that done. Or more likely, the most common case we have is wage theft cases, people who've worked and didn't get paid, which you would think doesn't happen a lot, but for poor folks happens a lot. Okay, the, speaking of the low wage, uh, how, okay, so these, as you said, low wage employees, they don't have a lot of money. How do they get in contact with you guys or is there, how do they file a claim even? I mean, I would assume that it's kind of difficult for them to go, hey, I worked for these people, they're not paying me. It's easy to say it, but it seems more difficult to take a sort of action on it. Right. Well, we get our cases from two different places, and one is from the Indiana Department of Labor, which actually has a wage claims division, has a way people can fill out forms online. It's actually pretty good. Some states don't have such a great system. Uh, folks can file a claim in the federal government or the state government, usually the Department of Labor, both places. And uh, the Indiana Department of Labor commissioner is an alum of our school, an alum of our clinics. He actually was in the clinics back when I was teaching. Teaching, uh, teaching it back in the day. And so he and his, uh, his staff refer some clients over to us. And um, we also get a lot of referrals on a lot of our clinics from Indiana Legal Services, which is the largest low-income legal services provider in town. What type of employers, employers do you typically deal with? Because it doesn't seem like, it seems like anyone that's a bigger employer would have kind of a spotlight on them, it'd be a little bit more difficult for them to get by with something with this. So does it tend to be more kind of like mid-level employers or are we talking, you know, all the way, like you guys are dealing with Walmart employees type right. deal? 
Um, well, we ha- it, it's a it's a bit of a mix, but I think your your instincts are right. It's usually lower level employers, and sometimes it's people who are just hiring somebody and paying them by the hour cash um, when they should be taking out uh, FICA and unemployment uh, um, trust fund contributions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's a lot of times it's, it's folks doing just kind of like. Um, general labor work, roofers, um, general construction, but it's, it's often a lot of times it's food service folks, and those sometimes are people connected to some pretty big entities. Right. We we have um, a couple of clients right now who are um, former McDonald's workers, and uh, they were told, and that happens a lot in the hospitality industry and the food industry, need to work off the clock. Um, you're supposed to get your break. You can't get your break. You work through, which is one thing. But if they actually are automatically clocking you out and you're essentially working for free every day or you have to stay late and working for free every day, again, that's that's against the law. And um, low-wage workers, for the most part, are, are desperate for what kind of job they can have. They don't often raise that uh, as an issue, and sometimes they don't realize they can raise it as an issue. Here, I tell a story about how I used to work in a major box store. There was one time that a manager walked up to my coworker while I was standing there and asked her to work off the clock for a few hours. He told her they needed somebody to come in, but they were too short on hours and asked if she would please do it. I was shocked that one, he asked, and two, she agreed. And a few days later, I was there working those days, and sure enough, she was there working off the clock. Yeah, Walmart has had had a major litigation against them for doing that systemically, putting a lot of pressure on the corporate level on the managers, and the managers have a tight payroll, and they, they're saying just that. It's like, you know, we I need to make the payroll be this, but I need you to, to work this right. much. Um, and so it, it does come, and, and the person, of course, who's paying the price are the, the lowest level workers. And yeah. so we represent those folks. Uh, we represent them also sometimes when they've lost their job. Indiana is what's called an employment at will state, meaning if you uh, don't have a union contract or if you don't have some kind of written contract and your boss wants to fire you, they just can. And there's not much you can do about it unless you've been overtly discriminated against and you're in a protected class. If they say, you know, we don't like you because you're a certain race or right. ethnicity or religion. It has to be pretty specific. Right. So, but if they just say, you know, quickly, I don't like the shirt you're wearing today, you're fired, um, they can do it. And I don't have a recourse. What I can do is apply for unemployment benefits. And unemployment benefits are a really important part of our economy in that they tide people over. It's how people don't lose their homes in foreclosure, don't get evicted and become homeless. It's not much. It's less than half of their wages usually, but it gets them through a few weeks. And so our folks, uh, oftentimes our clients are people who have applied for unemployment benefits, the employers fighting them, and then we represent them in a hearing in front of an administrative law judge trying to, to get the case resolved. How long does that usually take? Those, those move pretty fast. That's one of the reasons they're good clinic cases, because you know the goal of the clinic really is, is not just to serve the community. Really, the big goal is students are learning how to become lawyers. And so it's a 13-week class, and so you don't want a case that's going to be a four-year piece of litigation so that not much happens in that 13-week. An unemployment case, because people need the benefits so quickly, um, you apply, there's an initial determination, and then if uh, either the employer or the worker has to appeal that, then it goes in front of an administrative law judge, and usually within like three, four weeks. So a student can get a new case, interview the client, prepare for the hearing, hold the hearing, and get a decision 
all within their semester. There's, yeah, that's actually kind of a gold standard for us in terms of, uh, of the terms of student experience. Right. Uh, what's the, I guess uh, the other thing I want to ask, what kind of uh, protection are these low wage employees provided by? Is it mostly just they get unemployment and, you know, can't just fire them for race reasons or orientations? Uh, is there anything else they're provided? There's not a whole lot else to be honest with. There's a few other examples of you're not supposed to fire folks if they exercise a legal right, you know, that if they file a workers' comp claim or, right. or something like that, or they testify under oath um, that they've been requested to testify in court. But, but really, for the most part, employment at will means that the employer can fire folks when they want to fire folks or lay them off when they want to. So the unemployment system is kind of that, that safety net. But the other piece is, is that, and again, it should be uh, obvious, but you have to pay your workers. Yeah. And that's the one thing that it doesn't matter if the workers are undocumented, and sometimes some of our clients are undocumented folks who are working hard and they don't get paid, um, they're still entitled to get paid. And so the law actually isn't too bad in Indiana at the federal level, is if the worker can prevail and convince a court that, hey, you know, you know, uh, ABC Corporation didn't pay me $3,000, well, they can get as much as $9,000. They can get three times the, the amount that they are owed as a penalty against the employer. They can get attorney's fees against the employer. So if you can prove these cases and win, the law does have a little bit of a hammer over the head of the employer saying, you know, you should pay these folks because if you don't, you're going to have a higher penalty. As long as they have a contract, right? Well, in that case, <laughs> they don't even have to have a, you know, a, a, a contract. It, it's really? a, sometimes a little bit of a he said, she said as to how much somebody's supposed to be right. paid and whether they can prove they work those hours. But, but oftentimes that's not that, uh, it, that doesn't happen that much. What unfortunately happens more often is the employer is just going to try to get away with what they can get away with. Um, right. And sometimes I think actually some of the less sophisticated employers think there, there's nothing wrong with it, um, that making somebody work a few extra hours if they're willing to do it, hey, that's just the way the, you know, the business works. Well, it's not the way the law works. Federal minimum wage is something that Fran has written a number of articles on and has done a lot of research on. So I wanted to ask him what he thought about it. Well, raising the minimum wage now, right now it's seven twenty-five an hour for most workers, and for tipped employees it's two thirteen an hour. With the idea being that the tips are going to raise them up to a minimum wage or above. But we have a lot of clients where the tips weren't enough; they just worked at a place where they weren't getting many tips, and business wasn't good. And so, uh, tipped employees actually have a higher rate of poverty than regular employers do because it's pretty common for tipped employees to be not getting the kind of tips we'd like them to get. Um, so the, the proposal at the federal level is to raise the minimum wage to at least $10 an hour, and for tipped employees, it'd be something like 70% of that, which would be a big raise for tipped employees. Um, and that hasn't that tipped employees raise uh, rate has not been raised in almost a quarter century. So it's it's so what's happened is the minimum wage has stayed the same. Inflation has gone up. Um, the value of the minimum wage now is is far less than it would have been in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, and it used to be that the minimum wage was an idea that if somebody was working full time, they should be able to support themselves. Well, 7.25 an hour doesn't do it. I mean, you you can't pay the rent, you can't feed your family, and and I think there's a core moral argument there that does resonate with a lot of people from across the political spectrum, Republicans, Democrats, etc. Um, these aren't people asking for welfare benefits. They're not people who are trying to um, get something you know extra from somebody else. What they want to do is work at a job that's 
challenging, it's, it's, it's demanding, it's necessary in our community and get paid enough to support their family, not to get rich. Right. And so that's, I think, you look at the polls nationally, the minimum wage is really popular, a raise in the minimum wage. It's like 70 plus percent people think that we should raise the minimum wage because it does resonate the idea that, you know, these are folks working hard, um, trying to support their families. And, and it goes a little bit to the idea that things like fast food jobs. We have the clients who work for McDonald's. We have clients who work for Walmart. Um, we have clients who work for, you know, as busboys or dishwashers. And some people will say, well, that's just a starter job. That's what somebody is when they're in high school, during the summers, et cetera. Well, that's our economy now. And those are the jobs that are available. They're, you know, we don't have the manufacturing jobs we used to have. And so these are parents who are trying to raise their kids working behind the counter at McDonald's. And if that's what jobs we have in our economy, we need to make sure they pay okay. Part of the other argument is that what the research has shown is when you pay folks a decent wage at the lower end of the pay scale, um, it actually helps the local economy because if you, our clients are getting eight bucks an hour, if you give them an extra two bucks an hour, well, they're spending it in the local economy. They're buying diapers, they're buying food, they're paying rent, and so it's actually stimulating the local economy. So this is a very heavily researched um, topic um, on economists, and they can uh, tell you comparing different communities when they raise the minimum wage, the community that's raised the minimum wage has had a better economy in the going forward because the workers are actually able to afford to buy goods. So what then is the argument against it? Yeah, the argument against it um, is, is simply that that will be simply too expensive for, for workers, or excuse me, for, for, for companies. Uh, and a little bit of the argument against it is sometimes, boy, that's really going to hurt small businesses. Um, and you could see that in, in the hypothetical, like, well, if it's a small business and they're really you know, tight against the, the wall economically in their budget and you got to pay somebody an extra couple bucks an hour, that might put them over. Well, there's a couple problems with that argument. Um, one is that it's not small businesses paying the low wages. It's Walmart, it's Yum Brands, it's McDonald's. By far the highest uh, percentage of folks getting paid really bad pay are from big corporations that have big profits and big CEO salaries and a lot of other places where they can make up uh, that difference. Um, and so that's, that's part of the kind of mythology is going to hurt the small businesses. And again, a lot of small businesses are very much in support of it, partly because they think that and they think rightly, and the data show that's true, that if they pay people better, that they're going to spend the money in the local economy. But what they also know is if they pay workers better, the workers stay longer, and they don't have to train them all the time, and they are more reliable employees. One of the real challenges, if, you run a, if you're a manager of a Walmart or a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or something, is people turn over all the time. And our clients yeah. do that because why wouldn't they leave? You know, yeah. you, can, you can pay seven fifty an hour. I can go across the street and somebody else can pay me seven fifty an hour. I've got no reason to stay with you. But if you pay me 11 and I get some health benefits, then I've got some reason to stay, to learn how to do the job better. I'm going to be more motivated to, to, to do good work for, for you and for your customers and actually find more stability in the workplace. It's interesting because it is a pop. It is it is not yet passed um, at the federal level, but it's passed in a lot of communities. 140 communities across the country have raised their wage above the federal minimum wage. Um, and the states around us, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, all have higher minimum wages than the federal minimum wage. And so, you know, really, it's very popular because it, it isn't. You can argue about you know, immigration or welfare benefits or, or what have you. But this is pretty core to who we are as a country and as a people. Is that if somebody's working hard, for goodness sakes, they deserve a decent wage. Yeah, and things like um, 
the fast food worker strikes that have happened throughout the place. What do you think that's doing for it? Is that just, is it just, do you think it's just drawing attention to the issue or do you think it's actually going to do something to put some pressure on the companies to raise it? Um, I think both. Um, I, I do think that, and I think that they've been successful. Um, I, I can tell you that one particular fast food restaurant here in Indianapolis where we had strikes in front of, in front of it and workers and folks from the community were out in front of it. Um, and they were talking about how they got paid eight bucks an hour and that, um, they couldn't support their families on that. They couldn't put put food on the table with that kind of wage, et cetera. Um, the week after, there was a big sign out in front of the McDonald's saying, now hiring, paying $10 an hour. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so hey, that was so a nice little success. effect right yeah, there. Yeah, I think that goes but, up. but I think on a much more macro level, yeah, it has driven the discussion. And, and it's been very interesting to watch it because I was involved at a pretty early stage and the idea of, of fast food workers making $15 an hour um, really offended a lot of people. Even people who kind of supported the minimum wage to go up a little bit. It's like, why should they get paid 15 bucks an hour? Right. Why should it so much? And then, but that what that led to is a discussion and it was partly, you know, the media would cover it sometimes and say, well, you know what? It takes about 16 bucks an hour to, to support a, even a small family in the city of Indianapolis. And so, you know, 12 or 13 may sound great, but this people are still going to not be able to pay the rent and still not be able to give enough food for their family. And so the idea that maybe you know, the wage needs to be quite a bit higher than 725. Um, and I think that's actually helped drive the conversation nationally. And, and again, when folks see that the folks are wearing their McDonald's or their Taco Bell or their Walmart uniforms, and it's not a 16 year old kid, it is a, you know, 28 year old mom who's trying to make ends meet with two kids at home thinking, Oh, you know, that's a different type of worker than I really realized that we're there and starting to kind of humanize the folks behind the counter. Um, and again, those are the jobs in our economy. We, you know, used to be manufacturing jobs are really poor pay. Yeah. Um, and, but, but partly the union movement, partly legislation made those jobs into good paying jobs. And, and I think that's, that's the historical arc that service sector jobs, like, again, not just food jobs, but also security jobs and janitors and, and other folks like that. That's, those being living wage jobs is so important for our community because those are the jobs we got. Right, great. Uh, do you have anything else coming up that you'd like to talk about or speak on? Or did I miss anything that you want to talk about? Um, no, I don't think so. I think you've, you've covered it, Dave. This has been um, great. Again, that, that website is speakoutforhaiti.org. All one word, Speak Out for Haiti. And if folks are interested, they can, uh, what happens is there's information there. They can use it if they have a school group or a church group. And they, can, they can use information there and use it as part of the curriculum and discuss it with students or with folks in the parish, etc. But also, what it, if folks are interested, they can sign up for a monthly alert. And then every month, there'll be a, uh, an advocacy opportunity saying, here's how you can speak out for Haiti. You can send an email to your member of Congress because there's this important bill coming up that's going to impact Haiti. Um, or you can fax something to or, or, or send a message or make a phone call to the United Nations saying, hey, you need to do right by this cholera situation, or we need to look at trade policy, etc. But there's going to be a really coherent, um, frankly, kind of limited advocacy chance for people to actually speak out for Haiti and not just care or donate and do their service, which right. is so wonderful, but also add our voices to right. it, too. Actually say something. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. we got a lot of power as U.S. citizens um, of, of all the poor countries in the world, but especially Haiti. Yeah. Nearby. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate right. it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for doing it. There you have it, folks. Fran Quigley. Be sure to check out his website, speakoutforhaiti.org. And don't forget to check out Fran's book, How Human Rights Can Build Haiti, Activists, Lawyers, and the Grassroots Campaign. 
I also want to thank our sponsor, the McKinney Law School, and they would like to remind anyone interested in applying to the IU McKinney's JD program that the application fee is waived for those applying for the 2015-2016 academic year. You can find out more about the school and how to apply at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week, and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Catch you on the flip side. Thank you.